Okay, so welcome. Good to see everyone. Are we doing another recording? Okay. Uh, let me open us in prayer and then we can, we can start. Father, we just thank you for our time together. We ask that you would please be with us by your spirit. Keep us from error. Help us to understand your word better and to apply it better. And most of all, to see, to see more of you, Lord Jesus, and to love you more. We just pray for those still on their way, that you'd keep them safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to look at the, the Psalms in both sessions, uh, because it is such a, a critical part of the Bible. Uh, you're in, you're in, uh, we're going into wisdom literature now, so I'm sure Kai has gone through the different groupings. So you've got wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs... Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and, and Job are the five books in the wisdom literature. And so Psalms is the biggest, 150 Psalms in the Psalter. It's the, really the worship book, the praise book, or the hymnal of, of the Bible. And it was the hymn book of the Jews. So uh, we're going to spend probably our first session just looking at Hebrew poetry the way it works, different aspects of Hebrew poetry, and then, and then in the second session, we'll look at specific psalms. So, um, yeah, the psalms, it comes from, the name comes from a, a, a Greek word, uh, sorry, psalmoi, which just means to pluck a string, you know, like playing a guitar, but uh, it, it came to mean praise, which is closer to the actual uh, Hebrew word, Tehillim, uh, which has the root of Hallel. Anyone recognize that? What, what uh, English word? Hallelujah, yeah. Uh, and what does that mean? Praise the... Praise the Lord. Okay, so Jah, if you're Rastafarian, then, uh, uh, is Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. Praise the Lord. Okay, and so the, the Psalms are, are, are praises, songs of praise okay, to the Lord. Um, but the Psalter is such a rich section, and I hope, I'm sure as you grow in your, in your walk with the Lord, the Psalms will become more and more important to you. Um, Calvin and Luther said the Psalms are a mirror. So they, they show us our emotions and what we're going through. So you really get a wonderful spectrum throughout the Psalms. You get from incredible lows, total depression, despair, loneliness, darkness. Psalm 88 is called the, the black sheep of the family because it's the only Psalm where there is no overt praise. Uh, so the other psalms, there can be a lot of dark psalms, but they always, at the end, sort of come out into the light. But I will praise you and trust you. But Psalm 88, he doesn't go there. It ends with, darkness is my only friend. You know, so Simon and Garfunkel got their, their lyrics. Hello, darkness, my old friend. So, uh, but that, that just, I love that because in the, the experience of God's people, you, you may go there. 
but then there's also the other extreme of um, the, the end of the Psalms, the praise section from Psalm 144 to 150 is just full of praise and rejoicing. Remember those, those Psalms, let everything praise God. It's talking about everyone clapping hands, the trees are clapping hands, everything is praising God, all the instruments are praising God. So wherever you find yourself, emotionally you'll find yourself somewhere in, in the Psalms. And I've found in my own experience, especially when I'm down, it doesn't really help me to go and read Genesis or Romans or something um, because they're, you know, it's more narrative and didactic, whereas poetry has a way of, of getting at our emotions and our experience. Okay, welcome. Just doing an introduction to the Psalms. So, uh, poetry and art is actually made to move us, okay, in, 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 in a special way. So, this is uh, one quote. Woltersdorf says that art's power confronts us and prepares us for action. It exists not for escape from the world into contemplation, as is the growing trend with modern art, but to move us to act in the world. Okay, poetry is used for world projection, to change and inform a person's worldview. So that's the correct view of art. Godly art will not just you know, cause introspection and withdrawal, but will, will, uh, in its, in its, it has a power to move us. Okay? And that's what poetry does. Good poetry does that. And the Psalms are obviously good poetry. And so they're, they're there to move us. So uh, I'd encourage you, when you're feeling down, you don't know what to read, go to the Psalms. Um, I've never come away not uh, being moved in some way by, by the Psalms. Uh, Calvin says, he says, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. The anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And there's a longer quote, I won't read it now, but basically saying what I've just said, that wherever you find yourself, you will find um, that experience, that emotion somewhere in, in the Psalter. That's why it's an anatomy of the soul, every, every part of the soul. Okay, now, so when we come to, to Hebrew poetry, um, I, I'm, I'm just going to speak from the perspective of English poetry because I'm not, uh, not, not able to uh, read other languages' poetry and not familiar with how other, other languages' uh, poetry works. But generally, not always, not a law, you get all different types of poetry. Uh, but generally, English poetry works a lot on rhyme. So this is just a silly example. Uh, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. He put her in a pumpkin shell and there he kept her very well. Okay, not politically correct at all, but uh, <laughs> um, you can just see the words just flow and rhyme and the endings, uh, eater, keeper, shell, well. And so that's normally how English poetry works. Uh, but if you try to translate that type of poem into another language and keep you know, the words at the end rhyming in the same way, it'd be very, very difficult, if not impossible. Okay. So uh, when we come to Hebrew poetry, that's not so much the focus. It doesn't work in, in that way. Certainly in the Hebrew, there are... are uh, 
there is alliteration and assonance, which we'll come to just now. So the sounds are important, um, but it, its focus isn't on rhyming in that way. Uh, what Hebrew poetry does and what's distinctive about it is that it uses a thing called parallelism. So uh, what this is, is that uh, you have uh, line one or cola one. That's the technical term, what they, they call it. And then you have line two or cola two. And these two lines work together. Uh, and so that you can say they're parallel to one another. And so they have an idea, and then uh, the idea is either repeated or contradicted. There are different types of parallelism. But this is the main rhetorical device of Hebrew poetry. So the, one, the wonderful thing about that is, is that you can, you can translate Hebrew poetry into any language because you're not just trying to get words that, that rhyme. You're just getting, you know... A, truth here and a truth there and it's reinforcing it and then you get another line and another line or you could even get um, stanzas so two lines and then two lines reinforcing it. I'll give you some examples now if you're not sure what I'm talking about but uh, this is a wonderful thing the Lord has done because it makes the poetry translatable into any language okay and uh, Maybe Kai has told you already, maybe I said it the last time, I can't remember, but this is one of the wonderful things about Scripture, is that it is translatable. Okay. In Islam, you haven't read the Quran until you've read it in Arabic. Okay. You can say, no, I read it in English. If you went to a proper imam, he would say, you haven't read it, because you can only say you've read the Quran if you've read it in Arabic. And so, it's, it's not translatable. Whereas God has made the scriptures so that they are translatable into all languages. And you're still able to keep the poetic aspect. Um, which, as I said, if it was just sort of like that silly rhyme that I, I read you, it would be a lot more difficult to translate poetically. Okay, so let's, uh, let's look at some examples of parallelism. And then we'll look at some other aspects of Hebrew poetry, other rhetorical devices. Uh, so turn to Psalm 103, verse 10. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So do you see the parallelism there? He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Sins and iniquities tie up according to, ties up, deal with and repay, tie up. So you can see how it's parallel. Uh, this is called synonymous parallelism. Uh, just because, you know, you're getting the same idea in both lines. It's synonymous. Um, 
to see one where it's where it's uh, remember I said you could have it in stanzas as well so it's not just line one or colo one and colo two you could get stanza one and stanza two you can see in Psalm 27 verse 1 says the Lord is my light and my salvation of whom shall I be afraid the Lord is the fortress of my life of whom shall I be in fright okay and so you see that whole stanza is being repeated again. Okay, so um, <clears throat> I'm just going to give you the, the some of the, the different types of parallelism. It's a, there's a lot of debate in, in, in academic circles whether it's even a real thing, whether, whether you should be dividing them into different types because some people say, you know, you could just, you could, you know, be, be um, defining every single aspect uh, and giving each one a different name because it's slightly different, slightly different. So you could just keep on going ad infinitum and giving them different names. Um, and then so other people say, look, there's actually no such thing. It's just line one and line two. And so line two is just adding extra information. But I think that there is something to... Uh, parallelism that it I'm going to give you sort of broad categories and I think it will help you in your reading you'll begin to notice it when you when you see it so that's the one I mentioned was synonymous parallelism there's also climactic parallelism climactic and an example is Psalm 93 verse 3 the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Okay, so you see there it's three lines. Tricolor, not just bicolor. Uh, obviously, they're all referring to the, the floods. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring. So it's, it's, it's increasing in, 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 in its, its drama. Um, and the nice thing with this one is that you, you almost get the sense of waves, don't you? The floods have lifted up, the floods have lifted up, the floods have lifted up. You know? So even in the, in, in the reading of it, you get a sense of flood, flood waters rising. Okay? And so again, the power of poetry to do things like that. Um, uh, Psalm 92 verse 9, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. So uh, again, you see it's developing, it's climactic, building up. Some have called it a sort of a stepladder parallelism. Um, Psalm 145 verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. So there it's adding extra information. Uh, it's, it's expanding it. The Lord is not just near to those who call upon Him, but those who call upon Him in truth. Okay. And then we also get antithetic parallelism. Okay, so you've heard that word antithesis, the opposite. So antithetic is where there's a contrast, and that's where the power is. So, for example, Psalm 145, verse 20. So... Uh, we're just rushing through it. Uh, I'm sorry if you don't have time to get to the verses, but just, just for time's sake. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. OK, 
Okay, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So it's, it's antithetical, it's a contrast, but it's still uh, developing the point. Psalm 37 verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Okay, so you see the, the contrast there. Proverbs is, has a lot of this. If, you, if you're familiar with Proverbs, you'll, you'll, you'll know this type of thing. The good, the righteous son, you know, is a blessing, but the wicked son is, you know, a curse. And it does, it does things like that, contrasting. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> I think it, when you're reading, and you're just aware of these, it does make things a bit richer as you go through the Psalms. When you start to pick up on them, and start to see them there. And we'll look at Psalm 1 just now, and you'll, you'll be able to hopefully start to see them. Okay, any questions or comments about parallelism? Um, I think if you see it as the first line is, is you know, if, you, if you're hammering nails, if you're making something and you're hammering nails, you know, the first time you hit the nail is just to set it. And then you can start to drive the point home. And that's almost like the first line sets the nail, and then the second line often drives the point home. Even when it's by contrast, it's a contrast that is, is powerful in making us. Often we understand things by the contrast. Um, uh, in fact, there's a whole, whole uh, theology, apophatic theology, which is, says we can only know God by contrasts, by what he is not. Okay? Uh, but they push it too far, but it is helpful in, as far as it goes that the negative can help us. Okay, what other... <clears throat> rhetorical, sorry, rhetorical devices does Hebrew poetry have? As I mentioned earlier, it has alliteration. What is alliteration? Sorry? Yeah, it's really the consonants. So it's, it's rep, yeah, repeating the consonants. Um, and, and so you, if, if a if a person's a Baptist preacher, then they'll have three points all beginning with P or something. <laughs> okay. You're probably thinking, what? But we don't have that. <laughs> Other Baptist preachers. Okay. Uh, alliteration. Uh, so you do find that in the Hebrew where there's a, where there's a lot of... The, this, in, in, the, in the sentence, there's this, this play on the consonants. And then assonance is where it's the vowel sounds, yeah, the rhyming of the vowel sounds. So just one famous example, uh, without form and void in the Hebrew, it's quite a common phrase. Anyone know what it is from Genesis 1? Maybe you've heard it before. Yeah, the Hebrew, for without form and void. It's just people know it because it's, they often just throw it into a sermon because it's poetical. It's tohu vavohu, okay? Tohu vavohu, without form and void. So you can see the sort of, um, even the, the uh, both alliteration and assonance. Vavohu, so you've got alliteration with the, um, with the W, as we would say. But, um, and then you've got the vowels sound, the assonance there. So that's just an example. Um, uh, it has terseness. Hebrew poetry is terse. So what that means is it often leaves words out. Okay? It shortens it for, for punch. Okay? So 
Um, fewer conjunctions and definite articles, like fewer the and, and fewer conjunctions. Um, and then we have uh, personification. What is personification? Yeah, human attributes. Yeah, very good. Like the sun smiling. So <clears throat> you do find personification in in script in the Psalms and in fact in throughout Scripture. So here's one. Psalm ninety six eleven. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Okay, so you're giving human characteristics to to non living or non human uh, objects. Um, <clears throat> uh, Paul does this with sin. You know, he talks about being a slave to sin. And that comes all the way in Genesis 1. Remember that the Lord says to, to Cain, sin is crouching at the, at the door. So personification is very powerful, um, you know, especially when it comes to sin. It's, it's helpful to, to think of it like that, that it's out to get you, that it's, it's living and it's seeking to destroy you. And it's a war. It's a battle. Okay? So personification is used often. Um, uh, we have another term, so when, when, when human attributes are given to God, uh, that's, so we've got personification, that's non-living objects or, or non-human, but then when it comes to God, Anthropomorphism. So what's anthropos? What's anthropology? The study of? Man. Okay. Mankind. So anthropos is man. And then morph is shape. So you're giving... It's a, it's, it's a way we give God human shapes. Like... The arm of the Lord. Does the Lord literally have an arm? No, he's a spirit. Or the eye of the Lord is in every place. Okay, That would be pretty weird if you took that literally. Uh, but does he have eyes? Is he like us? No, he is a spirit. He is not like us. Um, I'm not talking about Jesus in his humanity. Remember, I'm talking about God. God the the, the spirit. The, the triune God as spirit, okay? Uh, not talking about Jesus and his humanity. Of course, Jesus as a man has arms and hands and feet and eyes. Uh, but when scripture talks about the arm of the Lord or the eye of the Lord or the ear of the Lord, those, those uh, forms of speech, they're called anthropomorphism. It's just God condescending to us in our weakness. Uh, it's a way of, that we can understand something of of God and the way he, that he acts. Um, and then there's another one if you just want to impress your friends. 
anthropopathism. So that is, pathos is, is feelings or emotions. So that's when we apply human emotions to God. Okay, so a lot of people get hung up like God regretted that he made man. And we're like, but I, you guys are telling me God knows everything and he, he, uh, he, he determined everything. Now you're telling me he regretted that he made man, but he knew he was going to make man. So what's going uh, Well, it's again, it's just the, 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 the Bible writers and God condescending to us in our emotions and the way we feel things. Okay? It's not to say, you know, it's a one for one with God and that he is swayed by emotions like we are or anything like that. Um, but that's just a, another one where we, uh, we, we say it's analogous. So there is some connection, but we just have to be careful. And remember, it's a form of, of um, rhetorical device. Okay, so uh, personification is one of the methods. Metaphor and similes. Uh, anyone know what the difference is between a metaphor and a simile? Yes, Tom. Uh, so you have the word as and like, metaphors, characters, things, 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 things. Yeah, okay. everyone get that? So a simile will normally have like or as. Um, so uh, Psalm 1, the wicked are not so, they are like the chaff. Okay, that's a simile, they're like chaff. Uh, Metaphor is direct and it's stronger. Okay. You could see the difference. If you said the wicked are chaff or the wicked are like the chaff, you can see that the wicked are chaff is a stronger, stronger statement. The, the Lord is my shepherd is much stronger than the Lord is like a shepherd. Okay. So, but both are used in, in Scripture. Um, metaphor and simile. Um, okay, and then just other things with poetry is that it's, there's a lot of imagery. So you're just painting pictures that move us. Okay, and again, that's the beauty of poetry. Okay, and so um, we want to be well-rounded Christians. Okay, so... Um, by nature, you'll probably lean one way or the other. You're either like a very, you know, left sided of the brain person or right side of the brain person. So you either like hate poetry or you love poetry. You hate Romans or you love Romans. You like really love logic and didactic things and the nitty gritty of theology. And then, you know, that's, you know, that's silly weak stuff, poetry and crying and stuff. Or you're the other way. This is like, this is where it's really at and, and the emotions and the movement and that and you're like not so much into the logic side. Well, uh, that's because of our sinfulness that we, we, we lean one way or another. We want to be f fully human. Uh, you know, Jesus, of course, is the perfect man. And so as human beings, we want to be able to rejoice in both. So you're going to have to work. So... Uh, if you naturally battle with the Psalms, then, then encourage you to work at that, to start to appreciate the imagery, to start to think in, in pictures more and things like that. 
I don't know how true this is, but I, it was a friend of mine. She's a teacher. And so she said, one of the ways you can tell is, if I say the word house, what do you see? And you don't have to answer me. But um, if, if you saw a picture of a house, then you know, you're more creative. If you saw the word house, then you know, you're more logical and, and didactic. I don't know. I said to her, I saw a picture of a house with the word house written underneath. So, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just encourage you. It really is beautiful. And there are good commentaries. But um, God has given it to us just simply to move us. You might not understand everything that's been said, but you can get a sense um, of what's going on. Okay, so those are the... the uh, some of the rhetorical devices. Any questions about that? The way Hebrew poetry works? Uh, I think most of you know, alliteration, assonance, imagery, terseness, metaphor, simile, I suppose, you know, I would imagine they're part of all cultures' um, poetry, you know, because that's how it works. It's in, through image and emotion, you know, as we visualize or see something, that it moves us. Um, but I can't speak authoritatively on that. Okay, so the next thing is the structure of the Psalter. It breaks up into five books. So uh, let me write them down so you don't have to worry. Uh, two, three, four, five. It's book one, or Psalm 1 to 41. And then 42 to 72, I think. Yeah. 73 to 89. 90 to 106, then 107 to 150. Okay, so you can just quickly, um, I'm near Psalm 90. So... Uh, if you look at the top of Psalm 90, it says book 4. And the last verse of Psalm 89 says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. And then if you go back to 73 and 72, above, book th above 73 it will say book 3. And then verse 19, this is an interesting one. Verse 19 says, Blessed be His glorious... This is of Psalm 72. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. So that's a refrain at the end of each book. But then it says, verse 20, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Okay. Uh, they're not ended. <laughs> There's more after that. So what's going on here? Well, well, any ideas? Any ideas why it's like that? Percy? No, they are. Uh, they are written by him. And we know that because the New Testament, they will quote, like Psalm 110, which is later. Remember, the Lord says, David said. How is it that David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make my enemies your footstool? Yes, John. Yeah. So they're not ordered chronologically, so that's important. 
which is, as far as we know, the oldest psalm in the, in the Psalter. It's the one by Moses. It's, which number is it? 90. So Psalm 90 is, as far as we know, the oldest. Moses wrote it, so it's definitely older than David's psalms. And yet it's number 90. Okay, so it's not chronological. Uh, the other thing is, because it's not chronological, it would have been edited over time. Isn't that right? So you had worship leaders in Israel. When I say worship leader, don't think a guy with long hair, tattoos, uh, I said previously when I taught this, I said, don't think of a guy with long hair and flops. And then I'm like, well, they probably all had sandals, actually. <laughs> so, uh, but don't think of that sort of guy who just, you know, he's like, he leaves early because he has to catch the surf and um, he doesn't really care about the preaching. He's just there to play the guitar or something. That's not, the worship leaders in Israel were, were godly, devout men and they were in highly theological. Asaph and the sons of Korah were the, were the worship leaders in Israel. They wrote incredible psalms that are part of script, that are God's word. Okay, so you need to think you know, that, that's, that it's, it was, it's a high calling. It's not just somebody who's good with a musical instrument. It was someone who's theological and has the right character, okay, which is something we we strive for here as well. That's what we also want to see, okay? Uh, my, my, my dream would be to have full-time um, musicians who are trained theologically and also musically and able to be composing music and writing music and producing music and etc. etc. So uh, that's one of my prayers and... Uh, the Lord's been very kind to me with many of my other prayers, so I'm sure one day. Um, but uh, so they would have edited it. Remember, so if you're at a certain point in history, there's X number of songs, and then they get added and they get edited and, and changed and that. So it might also have been that, you know, at one point that was the end. They said, you know, here ends the, the prayers of David and then, they added more or they shifted things around. But it's not chronological, as Jared said. So uh, that's just an explanation. But you notice that at each, each section has an amen and amen, and then it moves on. And so it's, it's broken up into these five sections. Now, it is difficult to know exactly the reason for the five sections. Uh, why are these psalms in book one? Why are these in book two? Why are these in book three, etc.? Uh, there have been various theories, but all the ones I've read so far, not to say I've read a lot on it, but all the ones I've read so far, you can always find some psalms that don't really fit the, 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 the paradigm. Yes, sir. Yeah, so I do think that just the, the, the division of five is definitely along, you know, the Pentateuch. So, you know, the Pentateuch, you've, you've done that, the law, first five books, and now you have five books. So the Jews would say the Pentateuch are the five books of Moses, the Psalms are the five books of David. 
Okay, and so they, they break it up like that. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, just the number five and, and, and maybe the symbolism, I think there's something to that. But that doesn't tell me, you know, how would the first book link to Genesis and how would the second book link to, um, because I haven't seen anything compelling to, to argue for that. Um, but uh, there, there are some interesting differences. So Psalm 1 to 41 are primarily the Psalms of David and the focus on David as God's king. And uh, I was reading something today by Waltke, and I think it's, it's correct. You need to, to see the whole Psalter is really about God's king. Okay, I know we don't often think like that, but if you, it, it is true. When you begin to look at it, it's really, it's either David as the king or Psalms about the king and the king's experience and the, the coronation of the king or the coming of the king or the joy when the king comes and all of these, or the wedding of the king, Isaiah 45, sorry, Psalm 45. Uh, and so when you begin to see it like that, uh, because we'll come to it just now, I, we, we believe in Christ-centered preaching and I, I hold incredibly strongly that all of Scripture is about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Psalms are about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you see the big theme is David as God's king and of course Jesus is the true king. Okay? And so really it's about, it's about Christ. So book one is, is David as king. Um, uh, book two as well has a lot of that. Book three, they're, they're, uh, it seems to be quite negative about the monarchy. It's, it's as though the monarchy just hasn't, hasn't done it, which it didn't. And then book four goes beyond, goes back to Abraham. So it's quite interesting. Abraham, sorry, Moses is mentioned uh, a lot more. I think he's only mentioned once in, in, in the other Psalms, but in book four, he's mentioned six or seven times. So it goes back beyond David to Moses. And so basically to say, no, there is another king over all, okay, the one who gave us the law at, at Sinai. And so even if the monarchy here isn't right, there is another king, points us beyond David to another king. And then the last section, book five, is of course the, the book of praise and rejoicing that the king will come and make everything right. So uh, those are broad brush strokes. Um, uh, another way you could put it is book one has, this is using just key important ver uh, psalms out of these each, each book. Book one is the coronation, so Psalm 2. Book two is, is the righteous reign, that's Psalm 72. When we get to 73, so remember it's at the break. Remember 73 is an important psalm. You want to remember what 73 is about? Psalm of Asaph, yeah. So he's, he's, uh, he's wondering why, why do the wicked prosper? Why does everything go well for these guys? You know, they, they die well, everything goes well for them, and he's wrestling inside what's going on. 
and he said his foot nearly slipped. You know, he nearly fell away. And, uh, you know, maybe you've had something of an experience like that as you like, you become a Christian, you think, oh, my life's going to go well now. And, and then it gets worse. <laughs> Suddenly your family members don't like you, your friends, you thought they were your friends, they don't like you. And then you lose your job on top of that. And you're like, God, what's, what's going on? And then your blaspheming friend or ex-friend, you know, gets promoted and so you, you, you can start to look and, and wonder these questions. And, and so uh, book three is this book, as they're saying here, the book of humiliation. So already 73, you start to see problems, questioning, concerns. Psalm 73 ends well, but um, it's, it's, uh, there's more um, uh, questioning. Okay, and then uh, initial triumph, Psalm 110, and then final triumph, Psalm 144. So it seems to also have a messianic movement as well. Um, okay, another interesting one which I quite like is that uh, if, you, if you look at Psalm 14, anyone want to read verse 1 for us? And then somebody else can turn to Psalm 53. And verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, we are corrupt. Which way are you reading? Of Psalm 14. Verse 1. Um, let me just get this. Uh, sorry, verse 2 as well. Okay, read both one and, verse 1 and 2. <laughs> the poem also says, The fool says in his heart, There's no God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there aren't any who understand the secrets of God. Thanks, Sibylla. Somebody have Psalm 53? Verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Anyone notice a difference? There is one difference. Sorry? It's in the beginning of verse 2. Yeah. I see something on verse 2 which actually says the one understands. So I'm not sure. No. Yes. The Lord and God. Okay, so Psalm 14 has Lord in capitals. Remember, what does that mean? Yahweh. God's covenant name, hey? Or Jehovah. We don't know how to pronounce it, but it's God's, it's God's covenant name. Whereas Psalm 53 has God. 
which is just L in the EL. It's just generic. It's a generic word, God. The same as in English. I mean, we, we use God of gods, Hindu gods, Muslim God. Um, but then we say there's the true and living God. So El was generic. It was the God of the Babylonians, I think. They were, or the Canaanites, I can't remember, called El. And so it's used of, of God. Um, and so you don't need to stress about that. Okay. So what? Yes. Does Elohim come from El? Yes. Yeah. Elohim is plural. So, um, so there's discussion. Is it, you know, what is, why is it plural? Is it a plural of majesty? Uh, like the queen, the queen of England, if she writes, she says, we, we are very happy. <laughs> but why, why does she say we? Uh, it's a plural of majesty. But um, I don't think it's a plural of majesty. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's hinting towards the Trinity. Um, but yeah, that's where it comes from. Okay, so L, so, uh, I mean, we, as I said, in English, we use the word God in other cultures. Even in, in Scripture, God says, I am Baal. Okay, you know that? God refers to himself as Baal. Remember, Baal was one of the pagan gods. It means father. Okay. And so he's just simply saying, I'm the real Baal. Uh, in, in Indonesia, I don't know if you've noticed, they've tried to outlaw Christians using uh, the, the word Allah. Because Allah is, is God. I think it's also originate from El. They're the same sound. But but it's still it's just saying God. So um, if you're a if you're a Christian in a Muslim country, you can just say uh, I worship Allah, and I want to tell you about the true Allah, just as much as you would say to someone I want to tell you of the true God. And um, um, I don't know at in Zulu the the word for God is in, in Kulunkulu, eh? <laughs> and that was the old word that was used before Christian. Christianity came, eh? Would they have called God? What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. So in Kulunkulu was a specifically cha- a word invented for Christianity? Yeah. Okay. Um, but in, in many cultures, it's a word that is already used, and it's just applied to to God as a generic term, but you couldn't have a generic of Yahweh because that's God's name. Okay. So why is there? It's exactly the same, these two Psalms, apart from that. So one theory, which I quite like, is that um, book two is more evangelistic. Okay. Because if you, you know, songs are powerful and it's also a way of learning theology and spreading theology. So if you, if you were to go to someone and say, you know, Jehovah, you know, I'm, I'm saying imagine you lived in the ancient Near Eastern world. They wouldn't know who you're talking about. But if you say El, oh, God, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, so it was a, a, a point of contact. Okay. Um, does that make sense? Sorry? It doesn't make sense to you. Uh, 
Right, so so um, using the Lord's covenant name wouldn't mean anything. Remember when Paul goes to, to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he doesn't quote a single Bible verse. Okay. In some churches, he'd be thrown out. Okay. He would say, get out. We don't want Paul the apostle preaching in our church. He doesn't even open his Bible. <laughs> okay. uh, but he preaches a whole sermon without referencing a scripture. He doesn't mention Abraham or anything like that. He doesn't tell a Bible story. Why? Because they have, it means nothing to the, that audience. They don't know who Abraham is. They don't know what David and Goliath. They don't know any of that, that stuff. It doesn't mean anything to them. And so Paul preaches. Everything he says is theologically true. But he, say, he contextualizes it for them. Okay? And he even quotes their own, their own poets. So he uses their own ungodly Philosophers, even because they're made in the image of God, there are elements of truth to sort of as the thin edge of the wedge. He's, he still confronts them on their wrong view um, and even says, you know, you've made a, a memorial to the unknown God. Uh, he doesn't say to the unknown Yahweh. <laughs> they wouldn't know who that is. But he, so he uses God, Theos, because they understand that concept. And he says, I'm going to tell you about the truth they ask. Okay. So that's why I'm saying this is more evangelistic, where people are at. They would understand El, they wouldn't understand Jehovah. Okay. And so uh, remember on Sunday, we looked at not putting obstacles in people's way. Uh, this is a wise way of how we reach people as well. So I like this model. It's even in the, num the way the words are used. Book one uses Yahweh, while book two uses Elohim. Okay, a lot more. Not, not only, but just the frequency. And so I think even in our, in, our, in our singing, you know, there should be a mixture of songs, some that are more accessible to, you know, less theological people or even non-Christians that they can get it where, and then also some more, because at church, obviously, it's, there's a mixture and, uh, and I get that, that view from here. Uh, okay, yeah, let's stop there and then we'll look at some psalms afterwards.